Welcome to Now with Steve Rio. On this podcast, I seek to define what it means to live a good life. How do we stay connected and aligned with our values and our purpose? How do we prioritize what's most important to us? And how do we optimize and make the most of the time we have in this life? Today's conversation is with Jonas Altman. Jonas is the founder of Social Fabric. He's a coach. He's an adjunct professor at UBC's Satter School of Business. And he's just published his first book called Shapers, Reinvent the Way You Work and Change the Future. Jonas and I have known each other through various panels we've been on together. We've walked in the woods together and we think about a lot of the same things. So this conversation was a really fun one to have and we haven't caught up since everything that's happened in 2020 where a lot of the trends we've been speaking about publicly for a number of years were really accelerated and basically forced on us. So this was a great chance to talk about all of that. We talked about entrepreneurship, we talked about purpose and meaning and how to find that in our work. And we talked about Jonas's path from burnout to what he's doing now and how that really shaped his life and his work. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. And if you do, make sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening. And if you have one extra minute, please leave us a review. It makes a huge difference. You can find me on Instagram, at Steve Rio. And you can find out more about how to transform the way you work, live, and feel with the Nature of Work Foundations program at natureofwork.co. Elon Musk is doing DMT and he's running SpaceX and Tesla, then a 17-year-old is going to be like, Elon Musk does it. So it might be celebrated if you're asking someone who's got like the hero entrepreneur or something that's like a role model. And he's, you know, when Sam Harris is like, I'm going to do LSD with my kids. And I see this like, you know, neuroscientist philosopher saying it, but he says it in a way that's like, I don't want them tripping balls in some dude's attic with, you know, bad LSD. Like he's saying it in a way that's like, it makes sense. He's like, if they're going to do it, I want them to do it with me. And he could say it in a way of like it's completely fact based and like and I, I think there's a lot of integrity there, but it's when someone endorses it who's maybe got the celebrity status and then someone hears it on a podcast and it kind of normalizes it for them, but it's the wrong intention. Yeah, they don't have the right details around it or background on why or how all those things. Yeah, Elon Musk for me is like a real trigger these days because I feel like guy A is doing all this incredible stuff in the world. That's cool. It's also like just an incredibly unhappy, unhealthy human, like so many of those power entrepreneurs. And he's and from what I understand, he's on a lot of medication. He's like very unwell. And uh his in his 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 way of approaching work is like horribly unhealthy. Yeah. Yet, you know, he's putting rockets out in space and doing crazy shit. Most of the thing is like a lot of kids at UBC when you do the check-in of like um what type of entrepreneur do you want to be? Less and less are they being the hero entrepreneurs and more lifestyle and social. Like I'd say at least half of the people in entrepreneurship are like, I don't want to work at McKinsey and and sell my soul to the devil. I don't want to run a startup with a thousand employees. I want to have a, I want to basically Patagonia. I want to grow better. I want to. Wow. And that's really refreshing. I don't know if they're just saying it, but originally it was a bunch of dudes who were like, I just want to drop ship and Tim Ferriss it up and, you know, go on yachts. Yeah. Which is fine, and if financial motivation was a big factor, great. But I'm seeing a lot of people, especially like people who can code and design, mm-hmm. who are like, I could do an app and just do this, but they don't want to just make an app and make money. They want to solve a real problem, that which is, is refreshing, amazing yeah. to hear. <laughs> I mean, you know, UBC is. We're also in Vancouver. We're not in like, you know, at Yale. I don't know. We're not at a college where people have the environment that they have and the sort of consciousness that that the average Joe has here. So that's true. And the last time you and I hung out was probably was it two years ago, something like that. You were staying in that yeah. I was in the um, it was called the Hideaway. Yeah, and we went for a walk, and we were talking about probably a lot of things we'll talk about now, but future of work type stuff. We've been on some panels, or you've hosted some panels that I've been on that we've we've talked about all these things. Uh, There's been a hell of a lot of change since we last spoke. Um, when did you start writing Shapers? 
Uh, spring of 2016. So okay. four-ish years ago. Wow. It's a really interesting time to be releasing a book about the future of work. Yeah. Especially with how much you could never have predicted or perhaps predicted for 10 years from now that's happening already because of what's happened this year in 2020. Does that feel real? No, it doesn't feel real. It, in some ways, it feels that someone stole the parade because mm. we were looking at 2020 as like a new decade. We, like the innovation economy, the people who work with data and computers and design. And then all of a sudden, all of these things changed and people found themselves, as you rightly said, working from home with much more autonomy than ever. They didn't have the tools, mental models, frameworks to separate because there was no separation anymore. Mm -hmm. And so work life became blended. So in some ways it was frustrating because uh, I thought it was going to take longer and there would be a sort of um, emergence and we would walk people along and they could be okay with change. But in a beautiful way, as sort of a gift, it was like overnight. Yeah, future of work was here. Uh, AI didn't win. We are our own worst enemy, and the virus doesn't discriminate. Hmm. So I'm kind of running with that. Yeah, yeah, because I I think you and I have been excited about and championing a lot of similar ideas. Yet what happened in 2020 was a lot of those ideas being basically forced into play with no intentionality, and you see all these companies basically doing everything they. Well, I don't know if they're doing everything they can, but basically adapting, just kind of, okay, now we're working at home, so let's just sit on Zoom for nine hours a day. Does that make sense? And that's the kind of only solution right now. Or Slack and Zoom, basically the combination of those two. And everybody's kind of going nuts with that. Mm. Um, which, yeah, like to your point, there's a lot of things that we are excited about, but if they're, if they're done correctly, it, it can create a whole new paradigm of how we work. And instead, it's actually freaking everybody out right now. They're trying to figure out how to adapt. I know you've been thinking about this stuff for a long time. Like, how long have you been thinking about? You call yourself a workologist, is that right? How long have you been calling yourself that? How you've been thinking? Like, how long have you been thinking about work as something that you're really passionate about? Like the way we work. Since I burnt out. Yeah. So 2010, 2009, 2010. It's like the way I was. The way I was working wasn't working, which we've talked about in the past. Now what? And to that last point of like, work wasn't really modeled on man or woman or humans, it was modeled on machines. So the way I was working was sort of not fit for a character like me. It didn't cater to the variety I needed, the autonomy I needed, the personalization. And I didn't have the language for that. I was sort of like, oh, that's interesting. And so when you see people zooming and their kids go by in the background, or you see their paintings up on the wall, it does humanize them, but it's still not humanizing work because we're still on the operating system for a machine-aged mentality. Mm -hmm. And that was sort of my like, aha, okay, there are companies and people who got the memo, let's say IDEO, like uh, Tim Brown's Change by Design was talking about human-centric design and putting people first way before it was a thing, mm -hmm. getting people to quit smoking, getting people to eat better. So that's when I was like, oh, okay, what happens if we get people to work better, meaning better for humans, better for themselves? You started writing the book in 2016. Did you, when you started writing it, did you have kind of a grand thesis for what it was about? Or do you have a whole bunch of ideas that you were trying to figure out how they fit together? No, I wish it was so uh, sexy and, and well thought out. It, it might be a lot of like re resonate with you in terms of your path of how you've got to now of work. So I cobbled together articles and ideas and, and was doing events that was helping me make sense of this. Like who are the people who get lit up by their work? Who are the people who are like something's off with the way we're leading, we're leading from fear? So I started doing these events about work and I started reading a lot and then I started writing because that's how I learn. So everything I was writing was like, you know, how to move to self-management or how to work the four-day work week. And I was just doing that because I was scratching my own itch and I also enjoyed the, the process of writing. Mm -hmm. And then it got to the point where I was, I, I was so obsessed with the topic 
that I um, found myself in a position where I had enough material and I had a, um, a fortunate client I was working with who said, can you write us an ebook about the future of work? And I was like, I think so. <laughs> like, yeah. And th that was when I gave myself permission. So up until then, I was just doing what is basically for micro consumption, 500, 800 words. Medium articles, To get them like that. in and, yeah. and read them and get your nuts and bolts and go back to your day. And the book as sort of a, you know, comparable to like an album, people just want to listen to the song now. No one's listening to full albums, very rarely. You know, Anderson Pack comes out with an album, boom, you're, you're listening to the hot two songs as decided by the algorithm or mm -hmm. by other people, uh, other people's listening habits. And I was like, and so it was basically giving myself permission. And then that journey was very much a journey of self-discovery of like, holy shit, this is like not easy. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Writing that amount of words like and putting it all together as a concise thought is a tremendous amount of work. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and, and what, yeah, I mean, you said it, it's very resonant for me. I mean, that's why nature of work exists. Same thing, scratching my own itch through multiple burnouts, realizing that the way we're working isn't working. Like you just use so much language that I use to talk about what I'm doing. And we're, we're doing very, quite different things with it, but both, both super highly relevant. And, what would you say in you know retrospect and, and now looking at the book, what is what is the overarching thesis or the couple of the key ideas there? Sure. Well, it was funny because you walked in and we were I was having that call. So many people look at a job as something they have and work as something they do. Hmm. The shift for me was seeing work as a practice, just like a mindfulness practice or a yoga practice. It's like evolving, emerging, it's messy. What works for you one week or one month isn't going to work the next. And as soon as I was compassionate with myself about that, things started to happen differently. So I'll give you an example. Show up to write, not really feeling it, move into like something fun like um, listening to podcasts, um, gathering cool images, you know, making a mixtape, like whatever, and not feeling guilty. So, so there's one aspect there of looking at work as a practice. Then it was like, what happens at the end of the day if you do a check-in? Are you depleted? Is your spirit sort of sapped? Or are you energized? And I was like, oh, if I get it right, most days I have energy at five or six o'clock. Like compound interest for the soul. So got energized, cool. Do I get to scratch my own itch or express myself creatively? And you just said that. Boom. Yes. And then the final one is doing something greater than yourself. Mm -hmm. And the moment you feel, whether it's true or not, but often it is because you're creating um, value, you're creating jobs, you're creating um, uh, platforms, information, then you kind of feel a part of something bigger. Mm -hmm. And that, all of those kind of mixed together and that the publisher was like, oh, that's a shaper. And I was like, okay. <laughs> oh, really? Because I, I, I called the target market shapers. Like when I wrote the yeah. proposal, it was, there are people in the world like Steve Rio, Steve Rio who shapes his life. Yeah. And he's a shaper and they're surfboard shapers. And then they were like, that's, that's it. And I was like, mm. and I had a bit of resistance. And then slowly I just was like, maybe that is. Like maybe, maybe when people say shape the future of work, or I'm going to design my day, mm -hmm. even if it's just a trick of your mind, I think it's quite helpful because you're looking at it much more like cooking or, you know, uh, crafts, craftsmanship. Mm -hmm. So I hear a lot about finding a more articulated perspective on how you work, and also a lot of intentionality in how you're approaching your work. Is that right? Sure. And but multiple perspectives. So you see your perspective of like I'm a writer. Great. Good for you. <clears throat> I'm a teacher. Great, good for you. And that's like very much about being something, like an identity. Yeah, it's like a noun or a physical, a physical thing. Like we we often see ourselves as a fixed object rather than a process. Correct. Right? Yeah. And then you're like, okay, well, how do I get a new perspective, a, a second lens? Uh, so coaches, mentors, mindfulness, psychedelics, lots of different things can help people get new perspectives. But often we get caught in our own story. So my story was, if I stop working, I will fail. If I stop working, I'll have more anxiety. If I stop working, blah, 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 more guilt. And then lose that story, adopt a new story, and now I'm sitting here with you. Hmm. Uh, Charlie, one of my students, 
comes to me and says, I don't want to study kinesiology anymore. I kind of want to be a digital marketer. I was like, do you? I get, go talk to Steve. And now he's a management consultant in Copenhagen. Right. Because he was awakened at 21 years old to say, like, I don't have to fulfill what everyone else is doing to say I am this. Like, he, he, right, he, he's, he's following a process that's very much. He wasn't afraid to step off the tracks. Yeah. He'd set, he, he probably set those kinesiology tracks for himself. Oh, yeah. But a lot of people set those tracks and say, well, now I have to be on these tracks for the next 10 years of my life. He yeah. was, I'm getting off, I'm doing something totally different. And from one of your other podcasts, podcasts, it talks about an amalgamation of paths. Yes. So we have like one path and we stick to it versus many paths that stack, mix, and match and sort of co- coalesque in a, in a beautiful way if you're open to it. Otherwise, it just feels like you're a generalist who never decided what you wanted to be. Right. It reminds me of uh, spiral dynamics or seeing like a higher level of consciousness and realizing that it's a complex process and a complex fabric, you know, your social fabric to use your language, yeah. right? Like, yeah. And realizing that that's, that's, it's perfectly normal to have multiple facets to how you think and what you want to do and what you're doing and to not really understand all of them. Each of those expansions and those growth opportunities are inclusive of your former self. Yeah. As opposed to like, I'm done being, my favorite example is the kombucha maker. I'm done with kombucha. I'm doing hot yoga. We're in Vancouver. So why not be, <laughs> why not be uh, able to see how they led, led to one another? Like, what is it? We're talking about health and well-being. Okay, great. Like, it's okay to stop doing something. But for me, it was uh, not easy. It was sort of like there was shame or like, what uh, happened yeah. to that thing? And then just letting that go and, you know, stop caring, which one of my friends says, that's the definition of happiness. Is to stop caring. That's what other people think. That's so, that's so interesting. I know for myself that um, I was a musician up to the age of like 26, 27. I was doing computer or digital work as a, as a side gig, but my identity was music and a musician. But when I decided I was going to go full-time into web development, it's almost like I carved off that musician and just put him in a closet somewhere and said, that was a waste of time. Or, you know, like that didn't, that's not relevant at all to what I'm doing now. And it's only in the last few years that I've embraced that creative person and realized how many gifts from that era of my life inform how I see the world and approach work now. It's very liberating. Um, mm. It's like, I thought, oh man, I missed the window to go to school and get this education. I'm years behind everybody in business acumen because I don't know all the language, but oh, I learned all sorts of other things that they didn't learn. And there's no point in comparing myself to anybody anyway. There's a beautiful Walt Whitman poem. Mm. Uh, and the, the, uh, the line is, I contain multitudes. And while I was reading it, I wasn't reading the whole poem, but I read that line. There's a idea of like the unemployed self that doesn't have utility in the world. So you're r- recording identity, like music yeah. producer was like, okay, I'm going to put him away, mm-hmm. and then you adopted, say, a web developer identity. Yet you can acknowledge that in just a short period of time, you had multiple selves. Some have utility in the world, like in terms of financial currency. Some are just scratching a creative itch. Uh, some are things you haven't yet done that you know you want to do, but you haven't given yourself permission. So when I kind of came across that, I've been using that with some people I work with to say, like, it's a bad analogy, but what babies are you going to kill? Like what cells in you are you just going to let go? And they are like part of you, but no longer something you uh, enact upon. Right. Like we were talking about brain crack before. Yeah. And other parts that you really haven't and you're doing yourself a disservice. And so as you said that, that got me thinking a little bit about, I don't think we were, con- we, I don't think, I think certain people who I and my look at my friend circle, there's a couple of them like followed a very straight path, but more and more, even with my peers and other people I've been working with, it doesn't seem to be that way. Mm-hmm. But there's still a, a stigma or some uh, um, pressure, whether it's society or themselves, and it's very hard to say no to that every single day. Yeah, and and to to not conform. Yep. One of the things I'm really excited about right now is that that sort of mesh of conformity is revealing itself to be a complete falsehood. Like, you know, more and more 
there is no set path. There is no um, mainstream path anymore. The internet is showing us that there's really no single truth to anything, actually. Like it's I know the truth. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, well, you know your truth, right? <laughs> but there's, I'm sure there's certain things that you and I have uh, experienced or read the exact same thing and have a different truth around, right? What, um, now someone, you know, you've spent a lot of years, uh, you, you've done a lot of your own education and you're an educator and, and look, we were just talking about school, but I'm interested, as we, if school moves all online in this thing, do you, what, I mean, I think we are already questioning the relevance of the formal secondary education model. Not entirely, but that there's lots of questions about, does that make sense anymore? And now, like, where do you stand? Where do you, where do you sit with all that? You know, I think that workplaces should be synonymous with classrooms and yeah. that school should never end. I think that the formal degree that is about keeping the engine of the university in business needs to change rapidly and already is. So there's a lot of talk around, you know, if Harvard opens up its gates and you can just take classes online, what does that do to the sacredness of a Harvard MBA? And so like almost like in fashion, like dilution. Yeah, don't and print that, too many dresses right. or and they lower in value. Yeah. Yeah. There's yeah. a guy in Vancouver, uh, Scott Young, who did uh, MIT's like astrophysics online in one year and got his degree because he's a super learner and he wrote a... A book about it called uh, Ultra Learning. Oh, so right, it, yeah. So there's in so many ways. There's like you don't need to wait for permission to learn how to code to learn how to design. But if you want to uh, have the experience of of being a student and you have the ability and you're fortunate enough, then there's this sort of thing that's being taken away of of you know uh, diversity of thought, uh, the discerning inquiry, just to like investigate psychology and philosophy and economics sure. without having to like what am I going to turn this into in terms of a job? So that's possibly being under threat. So it's all about like, how does this improve my skill set or become a, a trade? And then the thing that's most interesting to me is the soft skills, the spiritual development, the human development of like the whole person. Like, well, that, are, they, are they okay at saying, I don't know when they don't know? And are they okay at saying, you know, I actually don't have to learn HTML5 because it's already dead, I need to go and learn Unity, and I'm just going to do it. I'm not going to ask my boss. Mm -hmm. And then when they go to hire someone, I apply because I know how to code, and they're like, well, why did you just tell us? We were just, you know, like that type of learning how to learn can do, and you've seen it with your former company, uh, and someone like Charlie, that's the skill for me, learning how to learn, learning how to learn how to change. Yeah. I've been fascinated by how many trends you and I have thought a lot about for the last decade that basically just got ramped up to 5,000% this year very, very fast. It feels like either a really, really, I hate to say it, bad sci-fi movie mm -hmm. in that, you know, for the first, uh, probably most of April and May, I was looking at a screen more than I have ever looked to the point where I think it had physical and uh, psychological impacts on me without me knowing. And then I kind of had a little bit of like, oh, this is a marathon. This is potentially a paradigm shift that is not just a blip. And so someone like me or someone like you who might have thought we've been training for this for the last yeah. decade or more gets a sort of awake, a rude awakening of like, aha, your practice now has to be put to the test and it's not as easy as just like, Oh, I've got this. Um, so I found myself like, mm, uh, I found myself eating a lot and not going and doing sports or, or yoga as much or having that sort of pressure of group fitness and not having the discipline perhaps to uh, say, hey, I can just switch this. I got this, create a new habit overnight. Um, in many ways, my reading practice or like loving to read went in some forms it went back to like micro reading and reading blogs and little bits of information but also at times like when i went to tofino for a few weeks i made it a point to like bring books and like get back to that stillness which mm -hmm. i know a lot of my friends got to so i guess in some ways when it comes to education work healthcare all of this is so chaotic it's a it's potentially a great reset but there's also this 
anxiety or um, existential crisis at the individual level and at a systems level of mm-hmm. like, where are we going? <laughs> yeah, it pulled back the veil on this sense of control and normity we thought existed, right? Yeah. yeah. And in that state of fear, it's very hard to make clear decisions. Like, it's not surprising that I, I'm sure I did too, uh, you know, move to more micro, micro uh, reading and things like that because the brain is in a state that's like, I can't really focus long term or long form right now because there's too much, too many things that could go wrong in the next hour. <laughs> yeah. And back to the inputs. I, I had a lot of friends who were feeding off of uh-huh. any new bit of information, whether it was local, oh, national, just obsessing or over the news, yeah. including my, my father. And I had to be very selective of like who, who and what I would let in mm-hmm. for my you know, well being. So yeah. forth. Yeah, no, I was giving a skills for COVID kind of workshop for a while earlier in the year. And the first slide was the news, there's important information out there, but there isn't important information every hour. And that's actually just a business model designed to get as much of your time and attention as possible. And you you need to start managing that. You're the only person that can change that. Mm. Once a day is maybe max, and you probably don't even need to check it once a day, right? Your book also talks a lot about purpose, and the number one question I get when I speak to young people or do anything is, how do you find out what your purpose is? A lot of people seem to think that purpose is like an incredibly elusive thing. Uh, how do you think about it in terms of finding it in your what you do? I could speak to it from my perspective, because I don't yeah, think perfect. there's a uni- uniform answer. I think people use meaning, purpose, and fulfillment interchangeably. And I think I can definitely make a distinction between meaning and happiness. Uh, happiness is a state, like having an awesome earnest ice cream, peanut butter, chocolate chip with a cone, and then it's gone, it's fleeting. Meaning transcends through time. So you can see Steve in the past and all the things you did and your agency in New York and Gastown, and you can see yourself tomorrow waking up in Bowen, and there's a sense of like, uh, a meaningful life, a meaningful existence. And when you say purpose, it's like we're now moving into language of like, what am I here on this planet to do? Mm-hmm. What makes Steve, Steve? And putting to me is what makes Jonas, Jonas was being a helper or helping. It's in my epigenetics, it's in my DNA. How, I didn't know. So mine was literally the A, B, C, D testing, hack, experiment, and find which way to wrap that purpose. So if you have to ask someone what is your purpose, fundamentally there's a problem there. Uh, you can do some exercises, but you are the only one who can know what lights you up and kind of intuitively feel that you're um, on a path that feels right such that you're comfortable in your own skin. Yeah. Once you're kind of clear on that, now there's so many ways I can wrap it based on labels, teacher, writer, coach, and they're just arbitrary. The underlying thing is helping, learning, growing, stretching, that kind of thing. So that made it really clear. It took me a long fucking time to get there. Yeah. So yeah. There, was def- there was time in your adult life where you're like, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know. I, I, all I wanted to do is work in the music industry. That's okay. all I wanted to do is just work around people and creative individuals that made music, love music without really understanding that I just wanted to work around people who were passionate and were fulfilling their purpose. So going back to Joel's comment around when you find your tribe or you find people that are on a path and you're like, aha, and you wanna hang out with them, learn from them, bring them together, cultivate that community, lean on them as a support network, you move into a whole new frequency when you're kind of not sure and you're searching and you're looking, which could be because you're young or you're in a transition or something happened to you in your life, you're wanting to get there, but you, you gotta do the work. Mm-hmm. You, 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 know, you can't just, there's no app to download that I'm aware of. So, how, so <laughs> someone thinks they're working on it. <laughs> if, someone, if someone says like, well, how do I get in touch with that? What were those transition moments or realizations for you? I think two that come to mind were like listening to the signals, like what the world was telling me. 
So at the time, I was living in London. Um, the music industry was going through a crazy transformation from physical to digital. And I also had one amazing friend who, his name's Sal. He, he's a self-made man. He used to drive ambulances. His, his parents and family ran a funeral home in Sicily. And he knew me very well, but he never really poked the bear. And in 2009, 2010, he, he, he could see how, how tense I was and how um, my inner, in, inner world was now seeping through in mm. terms of stress and impatience. And he, he's like, where did Jonas go? Like, what's going on? He, he can't, I remember we were playing, in the, playing Frisbee in the park and it, it, it hit me and I, I, I pretty much broke down there in a way of like, I, I had to go way off the path and follow some wrong breadcrumb in order to find my way back, which you find often in all the, the new age literature. You need a, a wake up call, uh, get knocked off your horse, some turning point to then emerge anew. And I'm not saying you have to do that. That was my path. And it probably will happen again. Well, I think it's in my true life. for most people. <laughs> yeah, most seekers have hit rock bottom at least once. Yeah, and that's what led them yeah. to where they are today, yeah. right? So, um, I guess I just wish I had more compassion to my for myself then. But maybe it's part of the process. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. So I think support network and people you could lean in on because they're in your life and listening to what is sort of some sort of symbol that you're attuned to that is like, oh, I keep doing this, I keep zigging, what if I tried zagging? Yeah. And obviously uh, there must be some component of learning how to listen to yourself and, and your inner, like the inner work too, hey? Yeah, well, getting knocked off the horse uh, in different ways, shapes, and forms has taken me to uh, family systems therapy, breath work, meditation, yoga, coaching, you name it. I probably have tried it. Uh, to a degree. Um, I'm a fan of whatever works for someone. I do think that the one thing I've learned to dance between between like having the autonomy in your own life, which is like persistence and business development and marketing and go get it and very, you know, the American like build it and patience. Yeah. And I've had patience for friends and family and patience in business and it's a game changer to be able to balance those two out and know when is time to, to push through and when it's time to let go. Uh, and I'm no expert, but I'm certainly now aware of how I was and how I would like to be. Mm -hmm. Can you explain what family systems uh, therapy is? <laughs> so everyone has a story that they've adopted. Uh, uh, everyone has potentially a trauma or a perceived trauma that has defined them in their, in their youth or as a child. And if you're a fan of developmental psychology, there's a way to let go of these old stories by doing some work, whether that is rebirthing or breath work or circling, whatever, it, or clearings. And so family systems therapy uses all different modalities and everyone has their own way of... Um, Champion it, championing it, but I think the benefit for me or for anyone who's open to it is it's really uncomfortable. <laughs> so the fact that it's uncomfortable makes it already something interesting to me. Um, and I think uh, if you think you're a self-aware person and you haven't gone back and looked at generational programming, like what was in your grandparents' life and how they grew up and my parents, grandparents came over from Eastern Europe, you kind of are missing a trick by thinking that you just were born and the story started. Right. So by going back and not necessarily fully resolving them, it reveals so many truths. So all of a sudden your existing relationships and your new relationships have a different texture or tinge. And then you're like, I there's no way I can go back to how I was. Like, there's this, it's not possible. Yeah, that's beautifully put. Yeah. The cellular memory of our ancestors and their traumas and their beliefs are all, well, they're all in here. Yeah. 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 And, it, and getting to them and, and releasing them, acknowledging them, being aware of them is a huge, 
shift. And the thing is, is like, like a lot of people just don't have a desire to it and bringing it back to the workplace, not that we have to. If a, if a leader is leading from hurt and leading from fear and isn't doing any of this work, I don't care how smart they are, I don't care how wealthy they are, there's a fundamental thing missing because they're not wanting to grow and develop others. Yeah. So we got a, Houston, we got a problem. Like On paper, you can look great for the stock exchange, but for well-being index, you're shitting the bed. Yeah. Well, and it's 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 interesting because I think you're obviously interested in just the well-being of humans, and and same as same with me. Like nature of work is about work, but it's about the well-being of humans. And shapers is about the well-being of humans, right? About and work is eighty, you know, sixty to eighty percent of our life, right? So it's super important that we we think about it from that lens. I think that a lot of this is very nuanced. Back to what skills do we want to? instill upon students is to them to model the behavior of leaders that you would want to follow. Right. You know, like I've watched, one of the things I watched over the last six months was the Michael Jordan. Yeah, we all have, right? Yeah. And I'm not a big basketball fan, but you saw how he had to create an enemy and you saw, at least I saw, a man who's still holding on to something and has some bitterness in him. Deeply unhappy person. Actually, that's what I saw. Yeah. And so you're kind of looking at that as like Michael Jordan was leadership for many years, whether it was sports or the, the yep. boardroom. And so now is an opportunity, and we're seeing it happen. CEO of Google, Yvonne from Patagonia. Next Jump is this web company, Spotify, Netflix. There's lots of great companies that have leaders that have their flaws, but the, the leaders there understand that the operating system is now it has always been human beings. Mm -hmm. Yep. Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, Michael Jordan, those to me all feel like brute force, take no prisoners leaders who are generally deeply unhappy people, both in their personal life and their professional life, yet materially move some, some needle forward and, and impress a lot of people, but aren't necessarily leaders we want to follow anymore. I, I think, I mean, I hope, I hope we shift away from that. Well, we're seeing what, 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 we're seeing what happens when four or five companies control uh, value to the way they are and what that means for equal opportunity, for our well-being and mental health, for inclusiveness. There's, there's pretty much not anything great you can say about it except for the, the idea of making progress on a unit or a GDP or like economic, yeah. but at the cost of planet, people, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and, and that's another thing that I think this year has accelerated is exposure of that, right? The sentiment right now, when we just watched the amount of wealth disappear in the world, but it just went over into a handful of people's bank accounts. Yeah. Um, it just accelerated the, the trend of inequity we've been seeing, inequality we've been seeing for a number of years. Again, it's just another thing that just hockey sticked another trend. There's the argument to say, should any of these companies with antitrust laws ever balloon to the size they are? Like when Amazon buys uh, the Washington Post and buys Whole Foods and uh, amalgamates all this vertical, becomes like the first vaccinated COVID-friendly company because they own the supply chain. Is like, how did that happen? And then half or so of the planet living off of less than you know six or seven dollars a day. Uh, or, or even less than that. So, you know, like if aliens looked at the scenario here, they'd be like, they're fucked. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we've kind of accepted it because it hasn't been painful enough yet. Right. For sure. But you've been championing uh, entrepreneurs and uh, individuals, creatives who know that their way of showing up in the world is meant to help alleviate some of this or improve some of it. Yeah. And if more people are coming over to this island, a, a new generation, this hopefully is an inflection point. Yeah, I prefer to take the Greek definition of apocalypse, right? Which is we're, we're in a revelation, we're in a transformation yeah. that we couldn't have seen without seeing it. And something new is happening. And we'll figure out what that is. We'll figure out if our fiat currencies still make sense 24 months from now. Yes. I don't know. We'll see, we'll see what's happening, but something will come out of it. Change is inevitable. 
and it, that's true. It's just happening a little faster than we might have wanted. With your with your book, if someone's reading your book, what's your greatest hope for them? So far, there's been two things that feel good. Um, one is. I thought something was wrong with me. I was a weirdo. I'm an oddball. And then I read your book and I feel like I'm okay and actually I'm great and I'm going to continue on being a shaper. So that's kind of a validation. And the other one would be for all the things we've spoken about, whether it's an independent worker, a micro enterprise, um, startup entrepreneur, entrepreneur leader who borrows how to look at their work day so they get more energy and they have a better psychological and mental well, well-being, uh, that will affect their entire world and relationships. So I think that that could be a great outcome. Um, and also at the sort of collaboration, collective systems level, the last chapter talks about futuring and kind of looking at the preferred future and the models that we could adopt at a systems level where we look at value creation, um, overshadowing value extraction, and getting to a point where we've kind of pulled back a bit on this gear of scorched earth tactics, go, go, go at any cost. Right. And we can just shift back into a gear that's like, like you said, the changes, we're all changing, everything's changing, but if it goes like at the point that it's been going, we get whiplash. Mm-hmm. Um, or as uh, Douglas Rushkoff would say, it's like present shock. We're shocked in the present right now. Yeah, and uh, I, lo- I it, love Douglas. Yeah, yeah, and so it's like ah, and w- that's why people are eating and they're doing online yoga classes and they're like booking trips to like Osoyus every four hours. Like, <laughs> right? It's like it's all. It's like you said. We're the amygdala. How do you say it? Amygdala. Yeah, it's all. Everything's. Yeah. So, uh, so I'm uh, sorry. So my hope would be. A little bit more of uh, confidence or maybe hope to to instill more hope that there is a path both for the individual and the organizations that that make our world of work to sail their ship better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and your book feels like it's part theory, but also really quite practical in terms of how to think about your day. Well, it wasn't always like that. It was very... Uh, theoretical because all the articles I had written were like, you know, three best practices to in- improve psychological safety in your teams. And mm-hmm. it was very much just a regurgitation. Uh, and so, working with an amazing editor named Anne, she's like, you got to inject more of Jonas into your book. So, I, I have a lot of stories either of myself or of people in my world to highlight. Uh, the anecdotes or the, the the data, so to make it more accessible. Because if I think about the books that I loved, although I do enjoy reading nonfiction books that are very like, let's say, dry to a degree, that present the data, it doesn't necessarily stick with me because we we understand in stories. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's so. Thanks for that because uh, in, in many ways it was probably not going to be very accessible because it was just going to present all this information which is out there in a package, now it's say 50% theory and 50% sort of practice or stories. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things I've been thinking about a lot, nature of work is really designed for the individual to create more transformation in their own way of working. Where do you see the, the most possibility of change happening? Does it start with the individual? I think right now we're in an interesting time where suddenly people have so much autonomy and so much uh, ability to shape how they approach their their work and what they're doing, even probably. But the organization has some strings. So, like, where do you think the power lies for the most transformation right now? Yeah, good question. Uh, my gut tells me it's a combination of like the global polity. It's government, it's leaders and organizations, it's bottom up employees, it's individuals waking up. So there's no like this is where yeah. we go in, but for me it's the unit of one. So I'm gonna start with a student or a person I coach, and we're gonna look at their blocks and what's stopping them from you know stepping into their higher self. We're gonna look at their values and their purpose, and then as soon as they start to like, you know, I don't know, like kind of stretch out of their old 
clothes or whatever the metaphor is, other people take notice and their teammates take notice and someone's like, hey, I want what, she, what, she, what she's having. Um, so that's how I've been c- approaching it. I have worked at the team level and the organizational level and I find for someone like me, the patient back to patients, to see the change that I want to see, I don't have that type of patience. So I have a lot of admiration for change management consultants and the types of people who can do like three, five year move the cruise ship just a little mm-hmm. bit that mm-hmm. way and hit Hawaii. Yeah, You're um, more geared to say, I can work with this individual, I can shift them, and yeah. that shift will inspire the next person yeah. next to them. And yeah, So I, the, I, my entry point is there, but I don't think it's the, the only one. I don't think it's necessarily the right one. It's just how I, I'm approaching it. Yeah, that makes sense. And for someone who feels like they're reading your book and they go, this sounds awesome, but I don't know if that's possible in my company or my organization to work like this or think like this. I can't see it. Do you um, what do you say to that? Well, I, I think there's two things that person can say to themselves. They could either say, how do I turn this job into the one I love by changing it incrementally with baby steps? And that's job crafting. And there's a lot of uh, literature around that, which is change your inner story, change the relationships or your, your way of showing up in your relationships and your colleagues. So like ask to take on new things, just just start making shifts and seeing what happens kind of thing? Yeah, well, that's under task crafting. So okay, task. task crafting would change the things you work on slowly, don't ask for permission, stop doing that, find a software to do that stuff and don't tell anyone, i.e. Excel as a, you know. Yeah. Uh, but relationships, like a lot of the destroyers of meaningfulness in work are bad bosses, back to our yeah. nine out of 10. And so one is figure out how to, change the frequency, the dynamic between you and your organization and your teams, or acknowledge that the company's values aren't aligned with yours, that no matter what you do, you're flogging a dead horse. And just pull the chute. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm more and more a fan of people who can build the resiliency, the humility, and roll up their sleeves and start to make real change in the organization. Yes. Which I've done a few times, but not many. And it's not fun, and you feel like an imposter or a pirate or a maverick, and you're kind of almost, well, at least for me, telling yourself you don't work there, and they've hired you in as a spy to come in and bring them like this bounty of like, this is all of our inefficiencies. This is all the things that are fucked. And I've already gone and used Eventbrite, and we don't have to use our antiquated system. I've already moved off of Razor's Edge or... Uh, oh connect <laughs> or whatever CRMs and, and you're no longer as technology uh, a detractor or uh, something that you're in debt for. But yeah, it's, it's a beautiful thing because I think now is like companies are seeing that if they don't start to shift, they're, they're not retaining, they're losing not just talent, but they're starting to lose money. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's he- they're hemorrhaging. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. It's, I mean, in your own life, it's easier to run away than to face a problem and solve it, but it's likely more rewarding to face. So it's an interesting analogy in, in terms of being at, in your work and saying, well, what, what can I actually do to shift this for the betterment of myself and maybe the person that's standing in my way or that's st- standing in their own way and, and doing that work? I asked someone yesterday that exact question, but I asked them to rate it on a percentage of, out of your reality, how much of this is your doing? Back to like we both read an article or see a car yeah. accident, and we yeah. What's say, your how much is your perception and how much is objectively true fact? Like you know they did a, a census. She's like seventy percent is fact and thirty percent is my story, and so part of that journey would be like let's say there's never going to be a hundred percent fact in you know your story, is to get her to believe that the way that she's showing up in the workplace the way she's validated, the, the learning opportunity she has is ticking 70% of her soul or of, of who she is, mm-hmm. which is pretty good. But if it's only ticking 30%, it's just a rough kind of exercise. Either it's time to go or something profound has to happen. Mm-hmm. And so that's an, another fun way to look at it because otherwise you're just like, my boss is not nice. I can't be here or I hate this project we're working on. And I don't know if that's that helpful right now in particular. Yeah. It's 
It's interesting, a lot of people who are, the, the stats are kind of showing a lot of people who are laid off from their work are not going to go back to the, where they were, like a huge percentage. Like I've talked to some people in recruiting and they're suddenly just absolutely slammed as these companies are starting to try and rehire. Um, because the people they t thought was a temporary layoff, some they don't—they're not going to come back. It's, it's pretty interesting. Yeah, like it's—it's it's forcing a reckoning in terms of how companies think about their employees and engagement and the, the roles they're creating for people. Yeah, and there's a—it was maybe a month or two ago, or maybe a few months ago, was the chief financial officer was looking at their spreadsheet, of which 20 to 25 percent was for the physical office. They're, they were still paying it, and productivity had gone up at, for sure, at some uh, mentally taxing costs, psychological costs, but prof productivity went up. So it's like a gift of like, okay, wait a second, we can just get rid of our office or downsize and make more money. But that's a short-term thinking. It is. When BrightWeb, it was like six years ago, we started pushing everybody remote. But I knew that I had to take the money that we were going to save on the office when I gave up that lease for our beautiful office that we had invested in. And I needed to reinvest that in experience and connection for people, right? Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it was not going to work. And I think a lot of companies are missing that, that key point. Or people shifting to the gig economy and hiring freelancers, thinking, oh, we don't have to do any training or social engagement anymore, we just pay them for their hours and we save a bunch of money, but they're missing the point there in terms of creating connection and engagement, hey? It's nuance, right? Like a water cooler culture that allows for serendipity that doesn't have a physical office with water cooler, so you have donuts on Slack where you get matched with someone to, to meet yeah. with. You get uh, retreats to wherever for two weeks. They're sometimes band-aids, but I think other times they're actually showing that the leadership cares that people can make the culture because they have a voice and the culture is a manifestation of the people who are in the organization. And it doesn't need a physical building to exist. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're recording this right now just in September, end of September. A lot has changed this year. How are you personally adapting what you've done before this year to make sure that you continue to find purpose and wellness and enjoyment and continue thriving in the work you're doing? The first thing I think is I, I've had to mourn or grieve how I gathered. I think everyone has. Yeah. And that's been tough because I spent most, a lot of what I love doing and what I did was bring people together. So that's that's one of like being okay with that, which I think I've I've addressed it. I, I see it happening and emerging and and uh, showing up in different ways, but not in the same way as it was. I'm kind of just exercising my patience again. I'm like okay, and then the ways that this is happening for me is. Um, Letting go of having to move and being addicted to novelty, which is a big part of sort of my story, and doing a little bit of the art of stillness and traveling within through conversations, through reading, through exploring locally. I've been to Bowen, I've been to Tofino, I've been to Savory, I've been to Hornby. You know, everyone I know is like, oh, have you ever been up to like Beyond the Chief? So there's a little bit of like, why do we have to get on a plane and go to Costa Rica hmm. and being kinder to the planet? So I think there's like all of these gifts that are, are being presented to me. And probably the biggest one is a, a coaching practice where people are in transition or are suffering uh, quietly because of their work situation or something else to be able to be a support system for them or support person for them um, feels amazing as long as I'm doing my own work. So that's been the challenge because there's been a couple of times where I found myself almost listening and being like, they're me. Hmm. <laughs> like I'm hearing myself talk to myself. How am I going to show up for this person if I'm not taking my own medicine? Like when I, when I said to you, we've been training for this all our 
I think now it's like we're in boot camp, moving through the tension mm-hmm. or sitting with the pain, some something like that. And uh, I, I I feel like there's a corner we're going to turn, but I'm not holding on to that, or I'm not attached to that outcome. Um, you told me uh, just to flip it for a second. You told me a few things before we started recording. Yeah. You've let's say you've gotten very clear on what is enough. You've let go of a of a baby or something that was very dear to you and freed up mm-hmm. the space and room for expansion. You're spending a lot of time in nature and helping people in many ways. But when you look at yourself and you look at what could be around the corner or what might be ways to direct your energy, where where is that going? Or where will that go? I think over the last few years that I have really gotten more and more clear that exploring inwardly and making sure we're helping others and and like the real value of life is not in building big businesses and making as much money as possible but I think I've slowly been correcting my alignment in my daily actions and where I spend give my most energy right so more energy back to my wife and and family back to myself and my lifestyle and being out in nature and all those things so I've been making those adaptions um, I sold a business that I loved Wherever but was not are, connected at all to who I was today. It was who I was a decade ago. So I think right now like I'm focused on nature of work. I'm focused on the work I'm doing with uh, Hamkala in the psychedelic space, so helping people with that. But mostly on continuing to explore the journey of self-discovery and through that hopefully helping others do the same thing. You know, I think everything that I do, that's really what I do, you know, is continue to try and look at myself and then reflect the questions I'm asking myself outwards to others. And that's and that shows up in nature of work. It shows up in this podcast. It shows mm. up in the psychedelic work I'm doing. To continue trusting in the belief that we create our reality out in front of us every like one moment at a time, we just create reality in front of us. Mm. You know. Reality emerges out of our consciousness of what we see and what we believe. So trying to stay as close to that essence as possible all the time. That's beautiful. It's interesting to hear all the uh, inner work and exploration you've done. It's, it's pretty apparent in how you show up and, and the work you're doing. Um, but I didn't know that about you. And I, like, it's neat to hear that you've explored all those things. I don't have any problem talking about it. What I do find interesting both for myself and for other people, is mistaking talking for doing the work. Yes. And a lot of people are used to, including myself, the download, the the Coles notes, the app, the hack, whatever it is. And when I get I come across people like that, I just want to meet them where they're at, but I also want to kind of let them go on their own journey. Yeah, unless you get into the unconscious, whether it's in the individual or the organization, the language part doesn't really change much, right? Right. It changes something for a moment, and then we go back to the pattern. So the question back to you, what do you, what is the next year for you look like or the next period of time post-book post, post book launch? So it, back to versatility yeah. and adapting. Uh, uh, with a wonderful organizational designer, I'm building, or we're building, a shaper's course awesome. to help out with people who are either shapers or interested in the concept. The idea is actually to hopefully have a retreat in the physical world somewhere in Europe next spring. That's a hope. I'm not holding on to it because I back to I love getting people together in yeah. nature or being a part of something. I still love teaching and we talked about that. I'm going to do teaching at the university. And I think there's a part of this openness that I've been exploring and uh, I've been gifted this word which is the, it's called fermata, which is the moment before you let out your breath or the conductor lets out the orchestra. Mm. So it's just a hold. And people are in many ways giving me this um, gift of letting me explore what does it look like to stop doing one-to-one or so much focus on one-to-one and get back into trying to do organizational change and work with you know, senior leaders seems a little bit daunting, but also could be great. How does that look online versus in the physical world? 
Um, I love writing. I don't have an intention to write another book, but I'd love to continue writing, maybe bringing in more of the inner work, soul type stuff, but in a way that's hopefully my way or more accessible than self-help or spiritual only. Mm -hmm. Um, And then some fun stuff like... um, I love making uh, music mixes. I love um, uh, surfing. I love all these other things that are a big part of my life. So making sure I make time and space for them. Mm-hmm. So one feeds the other, hey? Yeah. Awesome, man. Well, I wish you the best of luck. <laughs> Book's awesome. Um, excited for more people to be thinking in this way. It's, it's exciting. So it's neat that you've taken the, I know how much work it is to put this many words together and this many ideas together in a cohesive package so hope that it touches a lot of people thank you man i really appreciate it that's it for today's episode if you enjoyed it please make sure to subscribe and leave us a review you can follow along with my life on instagram at steve rio and for show notes and more information about the podcast visit natureofwork.co forward slash podcast or find us on Instagram at natureofwork.co. And finally, if you'd like to learn more about how to increase your performance, resilience, and well-being, how to increase the quality of your work while lowering stress and anxiety, you definitely want to check out Nature of Work. It's a personal operating system that has transformed my work and the quality of my life and how I feel every day. And with that, I'll leave you. Enjoy the rest of your day. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening.